Well, once again, welcome to the branch. Uh, it's always a joy to get to be up here and proclaim God's word. Um, and for some reason, I always end up preaching right before finals week for those of you that are in school. So maybe this will be beneficial going into finals week. Who knows? I could be that lucky charm. Um, as you guys know, we've been going through Acts, um, and today we're going to be in Acts chapter 17, uh, which is going to be in page, or on page 602 um, in the Bibles in front of you. If you guys have been staying up to date at all uh, with sports recently, we know that last night, Oregon State Beavs, they clinched uh, the berth to Omaha to World, uh, the World Series of College Baseball. Um, and if you know anything about me, you know I have a love for sports. Um, I love just the amount of time that athletes put into uh, their specific sport. Um, hours in the gym, hours in the weight room, hours in the field uh, to get their body in shape, to get their mind in shape. Um, but one of the, one of the aspects uh, that I absolutely love about the majority of sports out there um, is actually the, the intellectual side of, of the sports. Um, during my college days, I got a sweet opportunity to play college basketball at a small Christian university, um, and one of my favorite parts of preparation was actually the game plan. I um, mean, for those of you that are not kind of new to a sports realm, um, the game plan was something that each, each game we went into, uh, we had a scouting report that kind of showed, hey, here's what the other team kind of has to offer, um, and then our game plan was created in such a way so that, hey, this is the best strategy we have for going out and hopefully being victorious in that basketball game. So it was through that game plan that we kind of figured out, okay, when we approach this team, are we going to do a full court press or are we going to kind of play half court defense? Are we going to play a perimeter game, try to shoot outside shots? Are we going to try to pound it down low? Are we going to do a zone? Are we going to do man? Just wrestling through all these different aspects um, with really the heart behind the game plan uh, was to try to ensure a victory for us. And kind of in the same way as we approach sports um, and we approach with a game plan specific to that team. Tonight, as we look at our text, uh, we're really going to see how Paul kind of has a game plan and an approach for sharing the gospel uh, with the people, with the people of Athens. Um, I think it's important from the get-go to realize that as I'm talking about a game plan for basketball, which is what I got to play, never did that game plan say, hey, okay, this week we're going to go play that team in soccer. We'll definitely beat them. Or, oh, we're going to play that team in baseball. We always played basketball, and as we see tonight, too, and the same thing with, with Paul, as though he approaches the Athenians maybe from a different perspective, he's still always preaching the gospel. So as tonight as we get to look at this big word of contextualization, it's important from the get-go to realize that it is always gospel-centric. And so, so far in the story of Acts, uh, Paul's picked up about halfway through the story and becomes kind of the central character. And we see him going on this missionary journey. Um, and so far, we've seen kind of how the, how the gospel matches up against the zealous Jews in Antioch. And um, we've also seen how he approaches kind of the economical and political system uh, in some of the Roman territories of Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea, which we were in last week. And tonight we get to see how Paul takes on the ancient philosophies of Athens, Greece. Last week, the story ends with Paul in Berea kind of running for his life in a sense, which is a common theme we start to see in Paul's life as Jews from Thessalonica have come down to Berea to say pretty much, hey, get out of here. We don't want you here. And so he flees and ends up in Athens. He ends up there by himself. And so he's waiting for Timothy and Silas to join him. 
And so being Paul, being an evangelist like he is, he's like, hey, I'm going to spend some time in Athens, and I might as well share the gospel while I'm at it. And tonight, I really believe it's, it's an absolutely beautiful story that we get to step into, uh, partly because it's a story that's very applicable in our own lives, uh, as we get to see how Paul addresses the specific context of the Athenians and shares the gospel. And kind of prior to diving into the text, I think it's important for our framework to understand when, when the word contextualization is actually stated. When I use this, it's going to be a big word. When I use gospel contextualization, what do I mean? Uh, my lovely friend Tim Keller wrote it very eloquently. Um, and so we're going to look on the screen. And this is, when I say contextualization, here we go. Contextualization is not, as is often argued, giving people what they want to hear. Rather, it is giving people the Bible's answers, which they may not at all want to hear, to questions about life that people in their particular time and place are asking, in language and forms they can comprehend, and through appeals and arguments with force they can feel, even if they reject them. That's a very loaded, loaded statement. Uh, to somewhat simplify it, you can think of contextualization is truly the translating of the gospel, both in word and deed, into your specific context so that they can best understand the gospel message. Um, and, and tonight, we will get to see that we effectively proclaim the gospel by entering, challenging, and appealing to our culture. And as we kind of walk through tonight, as we walk through Acts 17, um, on the screen will kind of be the progression um, in which we, we move through the text. And so we're going to start by just looking at the Athenian culture, because uh, it's important to understand, okay, where was Paul? What was going on? And then ultimately leading into, okay, how does Paul actually share the gospel with the Athenians? And we see that the pressure points of entering, challenging, and appealing, and then finally getting to see what, what is the response of the people in Athens. And so we're going to start out again with that first point of looking at the Athenian culture. And so join me um, on page 602 if you're using one of our Bibles, uh, reading verses 16 through 21, uh, which really sets the stage for Paul's gospel proclamation. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be preaching of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus in the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this, teach, this new teaching is that you are representing? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and all the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So again, Paul sets the stage. This is what ancient Athens looked like. I think really from the get-go, we can see a few big, big tenets of, of their culture. Uh, number one is idols galore. I mean, that's the first thing Paul mentions is he sees the city full of idols. His spirit is provoked within him. Um, ancient, uh, ancient writers actually said that in the city of Athens, there was upwards of 30,000 idols. So to just do a little study, 
Corvallis has around 60,000 people in it. So just imagine if for the next like month, every other person that you walked by just turned into an idol right in front of you. Like that would give a good feel for that's how many idols were in the city of Athens. Obviously Athens is a lot bigger, but to just understand, I mean, that's like the University of Oregon State plus some, all being idols in this city. And with idols came a lot of just kind of sexual gratification in any way possible. And so prostitution was legal and just practiced everywhere. Um, A lot of it was temple prostitution. So just a really disturbing context, honestly, for for Paul to step into and for the Athenians to just really envelop. A second thing we realized right off the bat is that it is a very philosophical and extremely intellectual society. I mean, if we've taken any kind of ancient history, we know that Aristotle and Plato and Socrates, these were all the voices prior to Christ's day that were part of Greece. And so that's still the thought process that's carrying on as they have these ancient philosophies that honestly, I'm sure a lot of us still today in classes at Oregon State or whatever university we attended still address. Like these are huge thinkers and it really was the university center of the world. And we see in verse 21, that he says, they loved talking about new ideas. All they would do was just talk about new ideas. And so Paul enters the marketplace, which the marketplace in Athens was more than just a marketplace of commodities, but it was a marketplace of ideas. And there he is sharing his, his idea, this new idea to them of Jesus and the resurrection. And he runs into two of the leading kind of thought processes of that day. We have the Epicureans, and the Stoics. Uh, Real quickly, we'll just walk through who are these people. The Epicureans were a philosophical school uh, that ultimately valued pleasure, which as we just kind of talked about with their style of idol worship, pleasure was a great thing that many Athenians were all about pursuing. So it was all about the absence of pain and disturbance. And they didn't really believe in the gods of myths. So a lot of the Greek mythology, like, oh, we don't believe in that god. Um, their view of God was much more like that of, of a deist, saying that, okay, God created the world, and then since then has just kind of taken a step back, like a clockmaker. He makes the clock, turns it to go, and then kind of just lets it run its course. And then you have the Stoics on the other side. And the Stoics were the most common uh, form of Greek philosophy during Paul's era. Um, and they, they believed in a supreme God, but they viewed him much more in a uh, polytheist mindset. So he was one God of many. Though he was supreme, he's one of 30,000. He might just be the best of the 30,000. And ultimately, the world was just kind of determined by fate. So we just do what we can. Life might suck. Life might be great. But we just try to live a comfortable, cozy life. And so you have these two mindsets coming face to face with Paul as he proclaims the gospel. And you can tell off the bat, they're, they're a little confused at this whole idea of Jesus and the resurrection. Um, he actually uses the phrase of, of uh, foreign deities, as in plural, uh, because the Greeks actually believed that both Jesus and the resurrection were two different deities. Jesus being who Paul's talking about, but then this resurrection piece actually being this goddess that maybe goes hand in hand with Jesus. And so they're interested to such a point that the people of Athens are like, hey, we want to take you to the Areopagus, which is really our central hub um, and kind of the, where the intellectual elites of the city gathered together. Um, it's also known as Mars Hill, and it really was the highest court 
of the city. And this was the administrative body. Um, and this is where really your philosophical ideas either kind of passed and were like, hey, we, we can have you proclaim this in this city or we need you to leave. And so scene one kind of ends with Paul standing in the midst of these men of Athens ready to proclaim these strange things to their ears that they're wanting to hear more about. And so we move on to kind of the second scene uh, where Paul contextualizes the gospel. And that's in verses 22 through 31. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed among and observed the objects of your worship, I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needs anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. That they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of you. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The time of ignorance, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And on this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So part two of seeing Paul contextualize the gospel, um, we're going to really break it up into three, three sections as we see him entering into the culture of Athens. Then he actually challenges the culture of Athens and finally follows up with giving an appeal um, for maybe how they ought to believe and respond. So beginning with entering the culture in 22 through 28, we see right off the bat that Paul begins to engage with the Athenians for who they are and what they believe. Um, you know, he says, hey, you are very religious. Right off the bat, he's, he's acknowledging some kind of common ground um, with them. Though there's other translations that say instead of religious, it would be superstitious. Um, he's, still, he's still kind of saying, hey, look, there's a, there's a similarity here. Um, you're pursuing something something otherworldly, something unknown. And really, instead of condemning them for idol worship, which we obviously know he's very much against. I mean, we remember we read at the very beginning in verse 16 that uh, his spirit was kind of provoked with seeing all this idol worship. So he's very much against it. But he actually uses this religiosity that they have to, to find a common ground with them. And then in verse 23, he, he starts to move forward even more to say, you know, not only are you religious, I actually saw, saw an idol that has this inscription to the unknown God. Like, you guys are so religious, 
that you actually have an idol to a God. You don't even know his name. You know nothing about him, but it's kind of like, hey, we want to make sure we cross all of our T's, dot all of our I's, and so we'll have this inscription. And he follows up and he says, what therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. And it starts to move into talking about who, who God is. And so we see that Paul uses this inscription to the unknown God as his way of really moving us to the creator God, the one true God. And again, it's important to note that, that by no means is Paul saying, hey, this thing that you're worshiping, this unknown God, that actually in and of himself is the God of the universe. Because again, this is just a polytheistic, this is one of many gods. So by no means do we, does he attribute our God, the creator God, into this, this inscription. But he uses that as a segue, as an open door of really saying, hey, you guys, you, you cannot name this thing, but you're trying to worship it. Let me show you who you really should be worshiping. And then he begins this beautiful just display of who God is. We see in verse 24, uh, that he, he says, the God that you desire to worship is actually the creator God of the universe. He created the heavens and the earth. And you guys have all these temples and all these shrines in Athens, but that cannot hold God. Nothing man-made can hold the creator God. And then in 25, he moves on to say, not only that, but he has no need for you. Like we, you guys go day in and day out to these temples and sacrifice these, these animals or even sacrifice your body in a sense for the sake of these idols. And he's saying, this God, the creator God, the one true God does not need you at all, but rather you need him because everything you have is his. Life and breath itself is because of God. He does not need sacrifices or idols constructed of him at all. And then in 26 and 27, he continues on to talk about God's sovereignty and his desire to be known, where he says God actually determined these allotted periods of time in which your countries could have success, in which these boundaries of your land could be added to or taken back from, that God's hand was behind that. Yet the beauty is he shows how big God is to say he's the creator God. Nothing you do, he needs from you. And he's actually sovereign over all of this to then in the same breath saying, but this God wants to be known. He says, if they just feel their way toward him and find him, because that they should seek God. Like there's this desire, there's this hope that he instills in them saying, hey, we're looking at your culture. We're seeing this desire for religion, this desire for something else. And I'm actually showing you that that desire isn't wrong. You're just pursuing it in the wrong way. And that if we actually look to this God that I'm speaking of, you might actually be able to find him. Because he says, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. And then in 28, I love how he once again comes back to the culture. He starts with the culture of saying, hey, look, this idol, I'm going to use this idol and bring it to the creator God and share who he is. And then I'm once again going to come back to your culture. And he quotes two poets um, of, of the day that the Athenian culture, they would definitely know. 
Um, Epimedes of Crete and Aratus are what scholars have said. These are the two poets that wrote both of these lines. Obviously, this is an excerpt that Paul uses um, from larger, larger sections. And just as with the idol, by no means is Paul saying, hey, everything that these people wrote, I agree with. Uh, both of these guys were pagans. Both of these guys, within their, their frame of mind, Paul would definitely not agree with. They would definitely not align when it comes to their theology and their understanding of God. But it still seems that Paul's like, hey, I'm, I'm willing to use, to use these quotes as a reference to deity, to saying, hey, look, even in your culture, though we're probably very much differing on our idea of God, that this idea of deity, this idea of actually being God's offspring is something that's present within your guys' story. He feels the freedom to take these quotations and connect them to biblical truth of the one biblical God. And then he moves on to kind of see the second point. He steps into culture. He enters into it. And then second, we see him challenging the culture. And we'll see that in in verse 29 where we see Paul's entered the culture and he's kind of saying, hey, I know your guys' heart. I know your guys' questions, your beliefs, um, and some of your hopes. And, and I, can, I can speak that language with you guys as we look at this, this idol and as we look at poets. But then he goes, I'm actually going to challenge your culture and challenge your actual idea and understanding of God. And in verse 29, he says, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by art and imagination of man. I love how he uses idolatry to get to the creator God. And then he uses idolatry once again to say, you guys are so off the mark. Let me just direct you back to who God actually is. And he kind of begins this biblical critique of of idolatry. Well, he says, we, we are God's children, hence the God's offspring. And then begins, okay, we are God's offspring. Second, we know that we are living, we are animated, we are lively beings. We're not made out of stone, we're not made out of gold, we're not made out of silver. Therefore, God is definitely not made out of stone or silver or gold, but God is living and active and animated and a conscious being as well. You see, he's saying if, we have fashioned, if we've been fashioned by God, then how can we fashion God like us? If we worship him as we wish through temples that we devise, aren't we missing the point? God is so much bigger, so much greater. You see, he enters into the culture and says, I understand you, but I also have a challenge because we're missing the point. We are simplifying, simplifying God. And then he begins to move into his appeal, appeal to the listeners, kind of the third section of of 30 through 31, where he says, the time of ignorance, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So Paul enters the culture, engages with the culture, challenges the culture, and then ultimately appeals to the listeners. And this is where he kind of brings everything into equilibrium. 
There's some confusion as, hey, here's your ideas, here's my ideas. Now let me show you how my ideas actually bring everything together and are more holistic than your ideas. You see, he proclaims that this time of ignorance, this time that God kind of allowed um, confusion or allowed idol worship to happen, he's saying this time has come to an end. And because this time has come to an end, there's that command to therefore repent. He says, turn from your current ways of living. Turn from your pursuit of these unknown deities, of these idols, and turn to the one true creator God that I just shared to you, that I just expressed to you. And not only should you turn to him because he is the one true God, but he goes on in verse 31 to kind of say the why repent question, because judgment is coming. You see, God has displayed a day in which the whole world will be judged. Paul makes that very, very clear. And that the world will be judged by the one righteous man. And we know that that one righteous man, the only fully righteous man that ever lived is Jesus Christ, whom God has appointed. And Paul then proclaims one step farther to be like, we know not only that this day is coming because Jesus is righteous, but we know this because Jesus died and three days later rose again. And that is the defining moment that God raised him from the dead. We have an assurance that the judgment is coming. And what's interesting is as we look at this, Jesus' name is not technically mentioned in the verse. And so people will argue, oh, is he actually talking about him? But we know, for a matter of fact, that Jesus is the only righteous man that's ever lived. And we also know from verse 18 that that's who he's been proclaiming this whole time is Jesus and the resurrection. And I think it's important for us to realize that just as the Athenians were told that this time of ignorance has come to pass, that that is told to us as well, that our time of ignorance has come to pass. Because we know that judgment day will eventually come. The message of the Athenians is a message to us today as well. And so if, if you're in this room struggling with this message, I think we ought to look at the same approach that Paul gives to the Athenians, where he says, turn and repent. Though we do not live in a culture in which we have 30,000 idols all around us, yet if we actually look at our culture, we turn to so many other things than God. I mean, even when we look at Oregon State University, think of a place like Dixon, where everybody works out, and really we idolize ourselves and our body through working out and all those means, or beaver sports in general, whether good or bad. It's so easy to see how we turn so many other things, our education, our wealth, our girlfriends, our boyfriends, whatever that may be, and become, that becomes who we put everything into. And Paul's saying, turn from those idols and turn to the living God. Truly repent, because judgment is coming. But what I also love is that earlier we see that God is close at hand. And that's ultimately the beauty of Jesus Christ that God actually sent his son down to this earth, that he may live among us as a man, though being fully God, 
and truly lived the perfect life, lived the righteous life. So we cannot say, hey, we don't know who God is because when we look at Jesus, we see God. God is close at hand because Jesus was among us. And so when we turn to Jesus and put our faith in him, we can truly cling to the words of Paul that he puts in 2 Corinthians where he says, for our sake, he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Or Paul also says in Romans 8, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You see, Paul is saying judgment is coming. But through Christ, through a relationship with him, we are actually made righteous. Judgment is still coming. Judgment of believers, judgment of non-believers, it's still coming. But we know that when God looks at us, he sees his son. He sees righteousness instilled within us because of who God is. Through, the, through faith and life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we become the righteousness of God, and judgment is no longer something to be feared. It's absolutely beautiful. And, and Paul begins, really, I think it's a begins, this proclamation of who Jesus is. And then we see, moving into the third section of the people respond, I'm in 32, where he says, and now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from the, their midst, but some people joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Aeropagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So Paul shares the gospel. He appeals to the listeners within their culture, within their time, specific to their understanding. And some, some listen, and some automatically, they, they don't even let him finish speaking. Um, as soon as the word resurrection is mentioned, they're like, nope, we're good. Like, you're really stupid for believing that someone can come back from the dead. And so they mocked him. And I think through this third section, we really see three, three responses that, that are responses to the gospel that are still very present today. And that's number one, we see that he is mocked, um, that there is a rejection of the gospel message. They, in the end, just embrace their cultural way of thinking more than embracing the gospel message. And two, we see there's a desire to hear more. And not necessarily that they're like, hey, I'm ready to give my life over, but hey, I want to have more conversations about what this looks like. And then third, we see there's actually acceptance that a man and a woman and a few, at least a few others uh, came to know Jesus and like, hey, Paul, I'm ready to give my life to this. I'm ready to follow. And probably what I love about this is that, that it shows like there, there, there is a mixed response to the gospel. If you're somebody that shared the gospel numerous times, um, you're realistically going to experience all three of these. And, and we see no way does Paul, Paul, or, um, Paul or Luke, being the writer, make this sound like, hey, this was a bad, a bad job by Paul. So I think it's important to note that by no means is this, hey, Paul failed because there's a guy and a girl, maybe a few others, but that's it. By no means is that the case. They don't seem discouraged at all. But rather, there's, there's rejoicing in the fact that people want to hear more and that some people actually came to know Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior. 
And then with that, we see kind of moving into chapter 18 that his time in Athens has come to a close. And as we progress into next week's teaching, right off the bat, he's, he's leaving Athens. So this, this is the experience that Paul has in Athens. He goes there, he enters the culture, then he challenges the culture, and then finally he appeals to the culture and people respond. Though it's not always necessarily the response we want, which is even as we began with Tim Keller's a definition of contextualization, sometimes the biblical answer is not the answer people want to hear, and sometimes they're going to reject it. But knowing that that doesn't stop the fact that we are called to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to the people in our lives. And, and so what does this text mean for you and I? What does this text mean for us today in the 21st century in Corvallis, Oregon, or as a lot of us are finishing school and heading home to Portland or Beaverton or whatever that may be? This, this story, this text really lays the groundwork for how do we approach contextualizing the gospel in the lives of those of the people around us. And so just as we saw Paul enter the culture and challenge the culture and then appeal to his listeners, that's kind of the framework in which we work within our own culture as well. And so as we think through how does this apply to me, we're going to walk through each of those. And first, what does it look like to enter the culture, to enter the culture of Oregon State or Corvallis or Portland because the key is to effectively reach any culture, any specific person. We have to actually know that culture. And so much of entering the culture is listening to the heartbeat of that culture. So what's the heartbeat of, of your coworkers that you work with? What's the heartbeat of the people that are in your major that you see day in and day out through classes or through group projects? What is the heartbeat of the moms that you do, you know, little play dates with, with your, with your kids? Like everybody has a heartbeat that what makes them tick for life? What are their hopes? What are their dreams? What are their fears? What are they fighting for? You see, so much of entering the culture is, is asking those questions. And I know this is where I often struggle, is I just think, oh, I do my own thing. Okay, I know X, Y, and Z, so I just go and go and go. But what if we actually took a moment to step back and say, okay, what, what is actually being shared around me? What's being shared in the political scene? What's being shared in the social scene? Even in movies that are coming out in music, all of those things speak in to what culture looks like. And as we understand culture, we actually get to move into challenging the culture See, it's important that we embrace the parts of culture that are not contrary to the gospel. And I think I knew I grew up in a church setting where it's so easy, like, oh, dude, like, be in the world, but not of the world, which is really just our way of saying, like, be as far away from in the world as possible, but still, like, dip your toe in the world. And so, like, I wasn't involved with things at school, really, besides sports, and it was just all about, hey, being my church youth group, my church on Sundays, church on Wednesdays, and call it good. And it really wasn't until my senior year of high school that I saw no, I can actually embrace so many aspects of my high school experience, and by no means would I be like disappointing God for the actions of my life. I think it's important for us as well as we look at our culture to say, where can I get invested and involved 
not giving up the gospel, by no means giving up the gospel, but still getting invested and involved in different aspects of culture uh, that actually allow me to have an opportunity to share the gospel. Where the Bible draws a line, we draw a line. But our goal is to make sure that we don't put obstacles in the way of the gospel within our own lives and how we live. And if we're being true to ourselves, I'm sure every one of us could say we have specific obstacles that we've placed in our lives that actually are a hindrance from getting to share the gospel with people. I love, this can be on the screen, I love the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians uh, because this is, this is my heartbeat for myself, my heartbeat for you guys as we move forward. Uh, is he's talking to the Corinthians and he says, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessing. You see, in Paul's life, he valued the gospel more than he valued his own rights or his own preferences. He valued it more than his own comfort. And he ultimately valued it, as we see, even more than his own culture. He's a Jew stepping into Athens, and he's like, hey, I'm going to speak to you as if I'm an Athenian. Like, he's even removing himself from some of his own cultural barriers. I think a great example of this um, for out-of-country context is looking at a man named Hudson Taylor, uh, where he was one of the first missionaries to go to China. Spent 51 years there. Um, and as he moved to China, really quickly into his, his life there, uh, he began to grow out his hair. Uh, because that's what the Chinamen did. I believe it was the girl out the hair in the back with everything else shaved, super solid look. I'm losing my hair, otherwise maybe I'd try it. Or maybe I should try it because I'm losing my hair on top and not on the back. And then he went on to wear the same kind of style of clothes that the Chinamen wore. He ate what the Chinamen ate. He embraced the aspects of their culture for the sake of the gospel. And a lot of us honestly aren't going to go to China. But what does it look like in our present day culture to say, hey, I'm going to embrace certain aspects of culture for the sake of maybe being able to talk to, talk to my neighbor about Christ or talk to my, my best friend about Christ? Ultimately, when it comes to entering the culture, it comes to knowing the culture. That means asking questions and truly living life with people. Like, we want to be living life among people that don't know Jesus so that we actually get to know what life looks like for those that actually don't know him. And as we do that, it will naturally progress us into kind of the second thing of challenging the culture. I believe that if we effectively enter into the culture, then as we share the challenges of culture, people are going to listen to us because we've actually created a relationship in which we can have this kind of conversation. Yet it's super important to make sure that we have effectively entered culture prior to challenging it. 
I think a perfect example of this is this last week on campus, uh, there was a street preacher that stood outside the MU for three to four hours uh, just preaching um, the Bible. And I sat there for a few minutes as I was on the phone, and I don't think anything he said while I was there was, was a lie, was, was unbiblical, yet the approach just showed that he had not entered the culture at all. He started to challenge the culture before he actually knew what Oregon State was like. And so therefore, all he got was mockery. It was actually sad to watch as people walked by laughing or trying to hand out flyers, and people just laughed at the individuals trying to give them flyers. It's important that we know who we're actually stepping into, what kind of community we're stepping into. And to effectively challenge our community, the goal is ultimately to reveal inconsistencies um, in the cultural beliefs and assumptions about reality that we hold. I'm going to put it another way. Uh, one commentator said, with the authority of the Bible, we allow one part of culture, along with the Bible, to critique another. So we see what Paul does in this, where Paul takes an aspect of culture and then says, hey, I'm going to bring the Bible alongside it and show how, hey, you guys kind of believe this. The Bible definitely speaks into this, and now I'm going to critique different aspects of your culture, saying, hey, if you guys believe this, then you ought to be able to allow this to construct your thought process moving forward. And we know that our culture is always asking questions. In our day and age, it's constantly that of social justice and what does that look like for those inside our country and those outside trying to get in our country. Morality and ethics. Is it just, hey, you do whatever you want to do and that's okay, you do you, I'll do me? We're good. We're tolerance. We're identity. These are questions that our culture continues to ask. And I believe these are opportunities that we get to step in with biblical mindset to actually get to challenge that. As you get these questions asked to you, think how, how does the gospel speak into identity? How does the gospel speak into social justice? These are desires. These are questions that our culture is asking. And we get to proclaim the gospel through it. But the key to this is that we, we need to know our Bibles. We see that Paul, though he does not use specifically any, any reference to Scripture, we know that his, his talk is actually saturated with Scripture, where he's pulling references from Psalm 50 in there, and he's pulling references from Job to really just show that, though I don't necessarily have to proclaim, hey, this is, this is from Job 12 or this is from Psalm 50, it's still saturated in there. And so my encouragement to you is know your Bibles. As we know our Bibles, as we know what God says about identity, social justice, tolerance, all these things, we can speak into it with truth because we believe that this Bible right here is all true, that all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, training, rebuking, confronting. Like We know that this has the power and authority to do that. And so as we know that, we get to step in and actually challenge culture and then that naturally is going to lead to the appeal of appealing to our listeners. Where upon entering and challenging, we appeal to them that Christ is the ultimate source of what we have been looking for. We show our listeners that the plot lines of their life can only find a resolution or a happy ending in, in Christ 
himself. We get the opportunity to retell their story with directing it to Christ instead of to oneself. So much of our society is looking for, looking for God, but on all the wrong places. We're looking for him and kind of creating ourselves into being the American dream or to our academic success or our monetary success, having that perfect job, that perfect car, that perfect wife, or making a difference in this world. Yet we get the privilege of showing them ultimately how futile those desires are because God is, is near. God is near us. And so the appeal really is getting to share the gospel. And again, we, we never change the gospel message, but we state it in a language and form that the people around us can understand. I mean, our, the children right now are, are hearing the gospel message, and we use a language of, you know, in a childlike understanding. Right there, we contextualize the gospel to our little kids. And so the challenge is to leave here thinking, how do I contextualize the gospel to my, my fellow engineers in mechanical engineering or chemical engineering? Or how do I do it for my peers on the gymnastic team? How do I do it for my peers in the fraternity or the sorority setting? You see, the gospel is the gospel, and it is good news to everyone everywhere. And so it's good news to every person in Corvallis, Oregon. And I think the awesome thing is Paul just shows us we get the opportunity to proclaim that truth to all people because this just shows that no culture is too good for the gospel, but every culture needs it. I'm going to conclude with an illustration that just wraps this idea of contextualization up quite well. And to do this, we're going to enter into the world of demolition. So let's just imagine we're building a highway together, um, and there's this massive boulder in the middle kind of of our projected, projected lane. And so to get rid of that boulder, you're going to take a drill, and you're going to drill deep into the center of that boulder. Once you've successfully drilled into that boulder, you're going to take your TNT, your explosive, whatever that may be, and shove it down into the middle of that boulder, and then light it. And from the inside out, we see that the boulder actually explodes and are thus able to kind of sweep it or move it off to the side to continue our road forward. It's important to note that if we drill the hole and never actually place the explosive down there, if we drill enough holes, we'll have a bowling ball at the end. That's about it. And if we just simply place the explosive on the outside but drill no hole, yeah, we're going to knock out some of the side, but it's still a huge boulder in our way. All drilling with no blasting and all blasting with no drilling ultimately leads to failure. Yet if we do both, we remove the rock. And in the same way, to effectively contextualize, we have to drill into our culture. We have to do it thoughtfully and intentionally and thoroughly to drill in, to understand, hey, this is at the heart of our culture, the heart of our issue. We need to make sure that we then actually place that dynamite, place that thing. That's the challenging and the appealing 
to the culture. Uh, we never contradict the Bible by no means, uh, but we place it in there. And it's only when we do both of those things where we drill the hole by entering culture and we place that dynamite in that hole of being challenging and appealing to culture that we're actually going to be successful to be able to blow that boulder away and see lives actually changed for the gospel. Because if we simply just blast the outside, we might have a great reaction from somebody, but at the end, it's not necessarily a life change. And just like if we drill a hole and we say, hey, I know culture, but I'm not doing anything about what's wrong, then we're just embracing culture. But when we drill and we put that dynamite in, we see lives changed. Just like at the end of Acts 17, when we see at least one man and one woman proclaim Christ as their Lord and Savior. And honestly, I think anytime somebody comes to know Jesus, that is an awesome, awesome gospel proclamation. I end with this. Just remember that we effectively preach the gospel through entering, challenging, and then appealing to our culture. Let's pray.